Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. Let's go to Acts 17. Acts 17. We're picking up where we left off. We are in the book of Acts, verse by verse. I think we're going to finish in September, no joke. I was sketching out the uh, rest of the book, and I think, barring any unforeseen circumstance, I think we'll finish in September or so, which I'm really looking forward to um, getting to the end of those books. Um, Those last few chapters are just so action-packed, so many awesome things. Um, Let me catch you up in Acts 17. Paul has just healed a demon-possessed girl. She's a slave girl. This is how she makes money. She foretells the future of people. Paul was greatly annoyed, the Bible says, with this girl because she kept on following them. So she, he um, um, uh, heals her, and now the slave girl's owners are not happy. They begin to get uh, upset, and so they end up throwing um, Paul and Silas in prison. They're in prison. They begin worshiping in the middle of the night. There's an earthquake. Everyone's chains are unfastened. Through a series of events, the jailer commits his life to Jesus, and now we come to Acts 17. We're going to see some amazing things because we're going to see some patterns now develop in the early church, some things that seem to happen all the time with them, and as we see Paul on his way to Thessalonica, we're going to look at his journey. We're going to unpack four compelling ways to describe the early church. It's not rocket science. It's right there in the text, four ways to describe the early church. And let me just tell you what my last point is going to be. Do these describe you? These comparisons describe the early church powerfully. And so at the very end, we're just going to ask ourselves, all right, do these four describe me? And then on a larger level, do they describe our church? So that's where we're going to go. Let's begin in verse 1. When they had passed through Amphipolis, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now, when Paul was in Thessalonica, he would receive financial support from Christians in Philippi, which is an interesting tie to another book of the Bible. Uh, this is an important port city. It's about 100 miles from where he was, and it's about a three-day walk. Um, and it's still a thriving city to this day. Verse 2, Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, so how long is that? Three weeks, right? Three weeks. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. Now, we have seen this pattern before. We start seeing these patterns when Paul goes to towns. He goes to the synagogue. He uh, hears them because he is well known, because he is well read and understands the, the Torah, the, the scriptures they're using. They would, also, uh, they would often invite him to speak as well. So he went there for three weeks and he reasoned with them from the scriptures. The Greek word there, reason, means this idea of a dialogue. There was exchange, questions, and answers. He dialogued with them from the scriptures. He did the work of explaining, uh, verse 3, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. This is a great reminder on what the word Christ means. Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? Jesus Christ. It's not his last name. It is a title. It means, uh, this is uh, the Greek and the Hebrew word used interchangeably is Christ and Messiah. 
This is the anointed one. It is a title given to Jesus. That's why he says it was necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one to suffer and to rise from the dead. This Jesus whom I proclaim to you, Paul says, is the Christ. There's no one else. We're not waiting for anyone else. There's no one else that's promised. He is the one. Verse 4. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Paul first went to the synagogue. He preached. And then there were several notable aspects to his presentation, but he did the work of demonstrating that Jesus Christ had to suffer and to rise again from the dead. And this is what makes him the Christ. And there was a good response, actually a great multitude, uh, many devout Greeks, prominent Jewish women. Uh, by all accounts, this work was a success. Verse 5, big old butt shows up, right? But the Jews were jealous. Why are they jealous? What are they losing? They're losing influence. They're losing attention. What else? Any kind of power, any kind of leverage. They're losing anything that they had in terms of control. They were jealous in taking some wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob. I'd like to be there for that meeting, right? So they gather the wicked men and say, all right, we are going to form a mob. All those in favor? <laughs> they set the city in an uproar, and they attack the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. So Jason was a Christian in Thessalonica. His house seems to be a center for a church. Maybe it was a small group of believers. When they didn't see Paul and Silas at the house, they attacked Jason instead and whoever else was there. Verse 6, when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Amen to that. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. So we've seen violent reaction from the crowds before, right? We've seen Paul go to the synagogue. We've seen him do that. We've also seen uh, numerous times where Paul goes to a city, starts a work, and then he's thrown out of the city, right? We've seen numerous times already in the book of Acts, I think three or four times, where there is a mob there's a riot. There is efforts to just eliminate Paul. It's really interesting, right? Before Paul became saved, um, uh, they were probably praying that Saul would die. They were praying for his elimination. Now that he's saved and he's come to Jesus, now there's another group of people that wish he would die, right? <laughs> this is just the common theme with Paul. So as we read these few verses, there's some compelling ways to describe the early church. We read one of them, verse 6. Number one in your notes or in your Bible app or wherever you're taking notes. Number one, they turned the world upside down. They turned the world upside down. In other words, the status quo had been broken. So the verse there in verse 6 says this, these men who have turned the world upside down, they were accusing Christians before the rulers of the city and they gave this unintended, unintended compliment on how God's work was affected. And they were complaining that these who have turned the word upside down, they're saying they have radically impacted our world and nothing seems to be the same. Now, God willing and God blessing, this is how God would describe the church, right? 
that a group of believers have now turned the world upside down. So Jesus did not come only to be a good teacher, but to turn our world upside down. He turns the thinking and the power structure of the world around. He turns our thinking about finances around. That's what Jesus does. He makes you look at finances differently, and then all of a sudden you realize that finances are not a, a right, it's, it's a tool used, and if, you, if you're impacted with the gospel of Jesus Christ, all of a sudden you look at finances differently, and you want to help people with your finances, you want to be generous. It makes, it makes anything you thought about relationships turn upside down. It is a scary thing to get relationship advice from society. It's scary. I've been, um, I've had a goal to be off of Facebook this year. I just don't want to be on it. I was on for a week so I could um, keep you up to date on what happened in Guatemala. I just don't want to be on Facebook. Um, and then while I'm in Guatemala, you know, you just mindlessly scroll, right? It's 1130, the dogs are barking, there's not much else to do, so you're just <laughs> scrolling. And I saw this article um, that a, uh, a Christian pastor and his wife have entered into an open relationship and they're blessing it within their church saying that this is the modern way that God wants us to have healthy relationships um, if, you, if you look at any kind of um, advice that people want to give you with relationships this is the kind of advice you're going to get you're going to get advice that says, um, if someone wrongs you, you should cut them out of your life. You know what happens if you, if you cut everyone who's ever wronged you out of your life? It's a lonely place to be. So what the gospel is intended for us to do is to flip our world upside down when it comes to relationships. Do you know now for us to teach, preach, and endorse sexual ethics, we are the minority? Um, for us to teach about forgiveness and grace and love for one another, we are now the minority? You think about our entertainment should be flipped upside down. We shouldn't be entertained the way we were before coming to Jesus. The Romans came and they said, man, we're, we, we, they're given this accusation. This is the evidence of, of, of why Paul and Silas and their movement was so dangerous. They said, you are turning our world upside down. Yep, that's what the gospel does. And what they meant as a criticism was a compelling way to describe the early church. Because now that your world is upside down, the status quo is broken. Whatever we thought was normal is now destroyed. We read on uh, verse 6. So they go to Jason's house, right? They can't find him. They drag Jason, some of the brothers, before the authorities, shouting, these men have turned the world upside down and come here also. And then look at, uh, look at this next accusation. Jason received them, and they are all acting against the decree of Caesar. Finish verse 7 with me. Ready? Begin. Saying that there is another King Jesus. Amen? Amen. 
This was a serious accusation in this time. Compelling way number two to describe the earlier church, their allegiances had shifted. There was another king. So even these evil men, these wicked men that, that got themselves together as a mod, set to riot this area. They understood that Christians taught that Jesus was a king. And because he's a king, he has a right to rule over his people. And if he is the one ruling over his people, there's no space for Caesar. There's no space for religious, religious leaders. There is only space for King Jesus. Amen? And it should be said of Christians that our allegiances have shifted, that we are not uh, pledging our devotion and our life to ideology or what we think or our preferences or opinion, but that we are submitting ourselves to a king. Their allegiances had shifted. There was now another king. Verse 9, when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let him go. Well, why would they take money from Jason? Well, this is a security deposit guaranteeing against any future riots. So in general, Roman officials did not care what people believed, but when the public order was disrupted by riots, then came down the iron hand. And if things got out of hand, it wouldn't be long until the emperor dispatched his legions to control and restore the area. So Jason, in essence, had a post bond so that he would not start the riot again. So Paul and Silas left Thessalonica quickly. They were only there from the best we can tell from the scriptures, as long as he taught on the Sabbath, which was about three weeks. So he was only there for about three weeks. He leaves. You can tell he wants to teach them more, but uh, is unable to do so. In fact, on Wednesday nights, our men's Bible study is going through 1 Thessalonians, which we believe is Paul's first ever letter that he wrote. And in it, he talks about the tension of, I wish I could have stayed with you longer, but I couldn't. These are the circumstances. We read on verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things are so. Verse 12, many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So the four ways to describe the church. Number one is what? They turned the world upside down. The status quo had been broken. Number two, their allegiances had shifted. Number three, they received the word with all eagerness. In other words, they wanted to hear God's voice. Verse 11 describes it this way. They received the word with all eagerness. So what does that mean? Well, when they went to Berea, they followed the similar strategy. They would go to the synagogue. They would begin teaching there. They would begin encouraging there. And they found out that their audience was a little bit more different than Thessalonica. They were fair-minded. They were more noble. Uh, they were a little bit more educated. And they weren't skeptics. They received the word with all readiness. So when Paul preached, they had open hearts and clear heads. Many people have clear heads but closed hearts. Amen? Clear heads but closed hearts. And they never receive the word with all readiness. You know what the difference is between a good message and a bad message that Darren or I preach? Uh, has very little to do with us. I'll be honest, it really does. It's your heart. It's the position of the heart. I know there have been many times when 
I'm on vacation or um, I have the privilege of listening to other people speak or, or, or maybe uh, I'm listening to a message during the week. And I'm telling you, if my heart is not ready to receive it, that preacher could preach his hair off and it wouldn't make a difference in my heart. That's what happened, right? It's good to have you here, Jack. <laughs> what is the line? Come back when you can't stay so long. <laughs> if your heart is ready to receive the message, I, I know there's so many times, Darren and I talk about this quite often, where as vessels, um, there are Sundays where we just don't feel worthy. The message doesn't come together. The notes are ready, but it's just flat. And we leave and we're dejected. And then one of you will text us and say, this happened while you were preaching, or this allowed me to think about something differently, or God used this verse to open up this relationship in my life. And it's such a good reminder for Darren and I that we are just vessels, but also it's a good reminder for you and I that the position of our heart when we come in to worship has everything to do with how you will receive it. There's a parable in the New Testament where the sower spreads the seed, right? I'm going to get it wrong because I just thought of it now and I haven't reviewed it, but he, he throws it, and he throws it everywhere, right? He throws it on the stony ground. He throws it on the ground with weeds, and then uh, there's one other kind of ground, I've, um, shallow ground maybe, and then he throws it on the fertile ground. You know the sower's responsibility in that parable? It's just throw the seed everywhere. And yet the fertile ground is where it grows. Our job is to be there with all eagerness, with an open mind, with open hearts. This is what made the Bereans distinct. Um, in fact, you will find this name, the name of many churches, right? Berean Baptist, Berean Faith Church, or something like that, because the descriptors of this group of people is so moving to what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. They received the word with all eagerness. So part of what allows us to be changed by the preaching, the teaching, the reading, the studying, the memorization of Scripture is whether your heart is ready to receive the information. Number four, I told you it would be a quicker message. Number four, they examined the Scriptures daily. In other words, they owned their faith. Look at verse 11 again. They said, when the Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, they received the word with all eagerness examining the scriptures daily. Why? To see if these things were so. The Bereans had heard the teaching of the most famous apostle and theologian of the early church and the human author of at least 13 New Testament books. And yet they still searched the scriptures when Paul taught to see if his teaching was truly biblical. They wouldn't accept Paul's teaching without checking for themselves. And I'm here to tell you, please don't take my word for it. On Sundays, you cannot take my word for it. I'm called to preach. I'm called a shepherd. I'm called to teach the word of God, and I will do so faithfully. It's one of the reasons we structure our services the way we do. The reasons why we try to go verse by verse through books is so that I don't get to skip over any passages. But church, it is your responsibility to seek the scriptures daily. When the Bereans heard Paul teach, their settled reaction with, wasn't, man, good message, Paul. And it wasn't, I don't like what he said. It wasn't, not enough jokes today. He said, they said, are these things so? 
Does this man teach the truth? Is Paul teaching us what he thinks or teaching us what the scriptures say? You look at that phrase again. The research wasn't casual. It says this, they searched the scriptures. It was worth it to them to work hard at it, to investigate what the word of God said and how Paul's teaching matched up with it. They searched daily to find out. It wasn't a one-time quick look. They made it a point of diligent, extended study. This Tuesday, uh, I'm going to have a blog that comes out that says five things I try to do every morning. And it's not to give you the pattern of my morning, but it's to, it's to help highlight what it means to prioritize Scripture as one of the first things you do every morning. Uh, Libby and I are going through a devotional that's written uh, by a couple, and they're just going through the Proverbs uh, verse by verse. And it's a year-long devotional, and we're trying to read it together um, to prioritize Scripture first thing in the morning. It has to be daily. It has to be daily. You know what the... You know what... Um, one of the hard things about being in a digital world is that we have our Bibles on our phones. And it's so hard. And I... And I, and I let me just tell you from my experience that when I try to prioritize scripture on my phone, my thumb wants to prioritize other things on my phone. <laughs> and it's like this muscle memory. I'll be reading it on my phone and I'll just instantly go to something else and check. Um, if you have trouble with that, let me encourage you to find a physical Bible. They still print them. <laughs> And just figure out what it looks like to read it physically. I'm saying, that, I'm saying this very purposefully because this changed how I read my Bible. Uh, find a translation that you like. That is, people ask me all the time, what translation should I read? Whichever one you'll read. So go to, uh, go to a bookstore. They still have those too. Um, and pick up a few Bibles. Read the... Uh, Find, find the Psalms, find something you like, and try it in a few translations. When you find a translation you like, purchase a Bible that you'll read. And one of the things I do in the morning is I try to read without anything playing, which is really hard for me. I always have music or something playing in the background. But just having this daily time where you're, you are reading the very voice of God into your life. These Bereans would go and they would hear them at the synagogue and then they would go home and they would say, man, are these things so? Should, should we have higher standards when it comes to sexual ethics? Should we have higher standards when it comes to our finances from our relationships? Is what Daniel is saying true? Is what Darren is preaching true? Is this, it, 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 should we take their word for it or are these things so? And by all means, if you find something that you feel like contradicts with what the scripture is saying, uh, I think my, my number is printed in every bulletin under the notes section. Call me. Let's talk about it. They searched daily in order to find out. They believed they could never understand and find out the truth um, secondhand. They wanted to do it themselves. This Bible is not just a pretty book of poetry or mystery or a spiritual inspiration for thoughts for the day. It was a book of truth and was there for us to dive into. Paul had nothing to fear by diligently searching the scriptures by the Bereans. And if we're really seeking God in his word, 
there's something beautiful that happens, and I was telling the seminary students about this, that we can become really educated when it comes to Scripture, but the purpose of reading, studying, memorizing, diving into Scripture is not that we would gain more information, but that our hearts would have transformation. And there's a big difference. And if all we ever do is learn more about Scripture, but it never transforms our heart, we become really well-educated hypocritical sinners. And we understand Scripture, and we understand the life of Christ, and we understand the books of the Bible, and we understand the history of Israel, and we understand all the different ways the kings ruled and who was good and who was bad. But if it doesn't impact how we relate with others, if it doesn't impact our finances, if it doesn't impact our relationships or our work ethic or anything else, we just become really big-headed Christians with no ability to walk it out. The purpose of reading, studying Scripture, the reason why the Bereans receive the Word and examine the Scriptures is not that they could be well-informed, but that they could be transformed. Let's read on verse 13. When the Jews, another big but, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the Word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Pilus, I'm sorry, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and they received a command from Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible. They departed. So they weren't satisfied to force Paul out of their own city. The mob wasn't. They even followed Paul to Berea to disrupt the work there. Now, if you're keeping track, Paul has been kicked out in Acts 13, city in Antioch, Acts 14, Iconium. Acts 14, again, Lystra. Uh, Acts 17, Thessalonica. Now Acts 17, Berea. This is the fifth city Paul was run out by an angry mob and stirred up by envious Jewish leaders. The Christians in Berea sent Paul away to Athens. They feared for his life, and they wanted him to continue the work, but just not there. Paul, uh, Silas and Timothy remained there because Paul wanted to leave them behind to teach and to take care of the new Bereans. And it's interesting because the fact that Silas and Timothy remained there showed Paul had a passion not only for planning new works, but to make sure that they had the teaching to strengthen them. Four compelling ways to describe the early church. Let's look at them one more time. Number one, they turned the world upside down. What part of your life just needs to be turned upside down? What part of your life needs to be turned upside down when it comes to how the gospel views our life versus the way we're living it? Number two, their allegiance had shifted because they had another king. Is there a part of your life you're not submitting to the king? Is there a part of your life where you're just, you're part of the kingdom, but when it comes to this specific area, you have failed to submit yourself to the king? And then number three, they receive the word with all eagerness. Is there an eagerness in our hearts to pursue scripture, to study for ourselves, to be people that dive into the word? And then four, they examined the scriptures daily. They owned their faith. You know, the difference between renting and owning, it's ownership. It's the investment you put into something. That first time that you uh, own versus rent, where previously all you had done is rent. There's a different sense of ownership. There's a different sense of responsibility because it's yours. 
What would it look like for you to search the scriptures daily? So again, the last point is this. Which do these describe you? Has your world been turned upside down or are you exactly like the world in the way they think and the way that they process? Is there a space in your life where you have not submitted to the king? Are you receiving the word with all eagerness? Are you searching the scriptures daily? Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at roseburgfcc at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.